How do you provide counsel to someone who knows everything, or at least thinks they do? On today's episode, we're talking about the challenges of white-collar defense work and why our current political climate is making those challenges harder. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. So almost by definition, when you're a defense attorney who works on white-collar cases, your clients are going to be really accomplished, high-powered individuals. They might be CFOs, CEOs, maybe even the former president of the United States of America. Whoever they are, many white-collar clients are used to giving orders, not taking them. So as an attorney, it can be a challenge to convince someone like this that they need to listen to you and do what you say, and especially when you're trying to convince them not to take the stand in their own defense. We saw how important this can be late last year when former crypto magnate Sam Bankman-Fried decided to testify in his federal fraud trial, a move that many legal analysts said ultimately backfired. Today's guests are two white-collar attorneys with the firm Haynes Boone with a lot of experience in employing the so-called soft skills you need when dealing with a, shall we say, extremely self-assured client. Nick Bunch and Kit Adelman both joined Haynes Boone as defense lawyers after working on the prosecution side of things. Nick at the Department of Justice and Kit at the Securities and Exchange Commission. They say they've noticed in recent years a shift in the mindset of many of their clients, who now often don't believe that the government prosecuting them is acting in good faith. In a bit, the two attorneys will explain why they think this has changed and how it makes their jobs harder. But first, I started off the conversation by asking Nick how being a lawyer is different when you're representing highly successful people. I don't know that we approach our job any differently in terms of analyzing the legal issues, the factual issues in the case, dependent upon where the person fits within the corporate org chart, right? The facts are what they are. The law is what it is. And we are going to take positions based upon the facts and the law, no matter what, whether we're defending the lowest level guy or we're defending the top executive at a company. I think where you get into some of the differences is uh, a couple of different respects. One, with, with highly successful people, they are deeply engaged for the most part on these types of matters. Uh, they are obviously successful and that usually means highly intelligent. They ask incredibly good questions. They really probe our work. They really want to in, in sort of invest in that process. Um, I don't want to say that that's every time because there's certainly some clients that just don't want to be bothered by certain issues when they come up. But for the vast majority of them, they are deeply invested, incredibly thankful for the work, but they put us through uh, our, our process and they ask the hard questions and they really sort of push back on some of the things that we say and, and they raise really good points uh, as it relates to uh, arguments that might be made for or against a certain position. Kid, what do you think about that? So I agree with everything Nick said. I would suggest that in each of our instances where we're representing individuals, regardless of where they are in the organization, we have to spend a lot of time handholding because this is not an area where we see repeat business, and, and or at least we would hope not, right? Our clients are typically folks who have not had government investigations before and would hope to never have them again. 
And so they are, in some instances, uh, dealing with a lot of different feelings and having a lot of responses that are, well, let's do this, or I'm going to call my congressman and they'll shut it down, right? I know the governor, I know the whoever. And those are not necessarily things that are helpful in government investigations. There are one-off instances where Nick and I could point to where that is helpful. But some of the things that made them really good at their job at making strides in developing business and having all of these contacts are not going to be the best way to approach a government investigation. I want to um, unpack something you just said, Kit, uh, about feelings, uh, you know, in that your clients, if they're being investigated by the government, especially for potential criminal wrongdoing, understandably would have a lot of feelings about that. Um but that means that there's like a psychological element to your job that you need to have like soft skills to be able to manage your client's state of mind. Every one of them needs a little bit different approach. Um, there isn't one size fits all. Uh, some of them need to have your cell phone so they can call you on a Saturday morning after they've stayed up all night worrying about something. But I think some of the soft skills part uh, does just come from understanding where the government is and how it operates so that you can translate that for the client. I think that the soft skills have to adapt to the particular client. Like I, I've certainly had individuals who are under criminal investigation or criminal indictment who want to know that they have a fighter in their quarter. Right. And sometimes you have to feed into that and you have to manage that. And it's a little bit dicey, right? Because there's times when they want to pound the table, they want to fight, they want to complain about everything the government does. And you, you have to kind of give them that opportunity to voice those concerns. And they want to make sure you're in their corner, ready to come out swinging on their behalf. But at the same time, you have to keep your objective, you know, lawyer hat on. Right. And have those very difficult conversations with them as well when it's here's what the evidence actually is showing. Here's how this is actually going to play out in a trial. And you have to manage those expectations. I wonder, you know, you guys have been working in this field both on the prosecution side and now on the defense side for a pretty long time. Have you noticed any changes uh, in that time in terms of the way that your now clients are responding to this or that the, the way that they treat you. I especially wonder if things are different now um, or if the attitudes of your clients have changed. What, what has changed over the years? The issues have changed both in terms of the government's aggressiveness as well as the technology and expectations of the client. So the government's expectations in terms of the amount of sanctions that they're seeking civilly and criminally uh, continue to raise, um, and the stakes are higher. So the anxiety of particular officers and directors when there is an SEC investigation, when there is a grand jury impaneled, are much more heightened than I think they were 10 or 12 years ago. Technology and the ability to communicate uh, all the time is something now that clients do expect. Lawyers are in a service industry and we really have to be there when our client needs us. They do expect a certain amount of responsiveness and they're entitled to it given the the heat of the moment that they're in and uh, the type of action that they're facing. 
I think one maybe additional thought on that, David, just to add is, is, and I felt this some when I was still a prosecutor within the last five years or so, is that there is a growing distrust of government in our country. And that's been brewing for a while. And you hear, we, we heard it when I was still at the government, when we would talk to people about sort of their attitudes towards us. But you are hear a lot more of those kind of comments um, even now that I think we ever would have heard them before. Do you mean from your clients? From the clients, right, right. In, in our job, like sometimes we have to look at things and go, I know how it goes at the government. I know how, to, how they're going to proceed. I know why they're doing this. And I, in some instances, I know those people, right? I have, I have relationships with those people. And sometimes we get hired because we have those relationships with people. And, you know, part of success sometimes is having the relationship with the person to be able to have a trusting conversation about what's going on. And yet when you're trying to communicate that sometimes to clients, you get a lot of pushback with, you know, just general complaints about government, complaints about the FBI, complaints about law enforcement. There's no doubt that anybody under investigation is going to have complaints about whoever is investigating them. That's par for the course. But I think the nature of that rhetoric and the lack of sort of trust and belief in some of our systems is becoming more and more a problem. Um, and I think maybe another point to add to it in terms of managing a client, especially in the criminal context, you're not just managing the client, you're managing the family, right? So if I'm representing the husband in some criminal matter, his wife is around. His wife is part of that conversation. And, and you're going to have to interact with her in some fashion and answer her questions and, and address her concerns because whatever happens to him obviously has an impact to the entire family. So it's not just a one-on-one -on -one situation all the time. Hmm. Do you mean because the family kind of has an impact or an influence on the what the client will want to, to do? Absolutely. Right. So so no husband, no wife is going to make a decision in a criminal case, say, to plead guilty without having significant input from his family members, whoever that close family is for him or her. And so you're going to have to manage not just your client relationship. Right. But also the broader familial relationship that he's a part of. So, David, I would tell a little story here as well, which is we had a client in connection with an SEC investigation, um, which went very well for him. We were successful in litigating against the government, but the government had a second investigation open with respect to that person. And his wife took me aside to say, we need him to settle. I know that it's another sort of unfair thing. But our family has just gone through so much. Even though he wants to fight, I am telling him we need to just close the chapter on this and move on. So it's the other way as well, right? Nobody's going to plead guilty without their spouse's consent, but they're also not going to fight if that's not what the family wants them to do. I have to say, I mean, that almost sounds like not being an attorney, but being a marriage counselor, right? Oh, sometimes. Absolutely. Fair assessment. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Um I wonder if that kind of anti-government sentiment that, Nick, you were talking about, if that makes your job harder or if that leads to different outcomes in cases. Because, you know, I have to imagine that 
if the client thinks that the government is acting in bad faith, that definitely colors what he or she will want to do and the strategy that, that they will take. Um, what do you guys think about that, uh, that the sort of a- this pervasive like anti-government mood that's in the country right now is making the, the way that white collar defense works different? Um, I think the way white collar defense works in many ways is impacted by the public opinion on the sanctions being too light in the past. And so the government being more aggressive in terms of penalties it is seeking from judges in the courtroom. And it's also, you know, a a belief that sometimes the markets are impacted by bad conduct of various individuals. So I think there's competing concerns around what the public perception is of the government. But from the standpoint of representing individuals, officers and directors, the problem with distrust of the government is the constant belief that some staff person, whether it's an AUSA in an office, a member of the DOJ uh, units in D.C. or an SEC office or FTC, um, that that individual is motivated by, you know, another pin on the wall, another notch in their belt, um, or that they're misconstruing facts in an effort to bring a case where no case should be brought. And that distrust makes it harder for us as lawyers to, to do our jobs um, there are some instances where staff folks run amok and um, do the wrong thing, act inappropriately. Nick had a recent experience with one. I've got another, right? Those happen, but it isn't across the board. And managing the client's expectations around they're just doing their job um, and understanding what that job is becomes a part of our job as well. Oftentimes with clients in these situations, especially the ones that are really intelligent, very sophisticated, they often have the attitude of, well, let me just go in there and explain everything away. So there's an investigation. Well, they just clearly don't understand. So let's just go in there and talk to them. And I'll just go talk this person out of whatever it is they are doing. The sales guys are often like that. If you're in the sales field, they love to just like, I'm ready to go make my pitch right away. The executives are like that. Anybody in any sort of complex industry thinks that, well, clearly the government just doesn't understand this. So if I go in there and explain it, it'll all go away. And that is incredibly fraught with risk to just run in and talk to the government without being properly prepared, knowing that they will take everything you say and dissect it and then go try to attack it. And you really have to work hard to get them out of this mindset of, let me just go make this problem go away. That um, that leads me perfectly, actually, into my last question, which is uh, when the client doesn't want to go in and explain to the government, the client wants to go in and explain to the jury. Um, when, of course, I'm talking about here uh, the client taking the stand in a trial on their own behalf. Now, based on my understanding, almost every criminal defense lawyer would say, don't do this. This is a bad idea. You're going to be subject to cross-examination. This really, please don't do this. But if the client wants to do it, I think, you know, based on my understanding, they have you have to allow them to to take the stand on their own behalf. Um, tell me about any experiences that you had uh, in either convincing a client not to take the stand or, you know, the client convincing you that, yeah, we're going to do this and let's see how it happens. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Nick, why don't you go first? 
Yeah. So, you know, most of my trial experience has been on the government side. So I've seen that issue play out uh, as the prosecutor. And I can tell you as a prosecutor, uh, we would be chopping at the bit, excited for a defendant to take the witness stand. And I can think back to the trials that I had. Only very few of the defendants actually got on the witness stand, and it never once ended well for them. Every single case resulted in a conviction, and when you're on the stand and you say you didn't do it, and the jury says you did it, the judge is just going to punish you that much harder for getting on the stand and lying about it. So it's, it's a really challenging position when you're on the defense side. I think that... Uh, at least in the cases that I've had that have gotten to that point, I've been successful at getting the client to realize there's no real upside for them to get on the witness stand. Kate, what about you? Well, remembering that I practice in a world that is typically civil law enforcement, the problem that you have in a civil case is the individual has to testify. The government can call them as a witness. Um, and they have to make a decision with their attorney about whether to take the fifth or to testify. And in a civil case, taking the fifth means the government gets a negative inference. They get to assume that whatever your testimony would have been would have implicated you in a crime. If we don't know, or even in some instances we know a prosecutor is out there on the criminal side, or some of these civil violations could also be prosecuted criminally, which is virtually everything under the securities laws. You need to take into account whether that testimony could open the door to criminal prosecution. So there becomes this real big push-pull around what the right answer is and the risk that you take in putting your clients um, on the stand. Oh, that sounds really complicated. Yeah. In the instances where we put people on the stand, it has gone well. But I mean, you've got to get somebody like Nick in the room to to do the really tough questioning. This is how it's going to go. And um, make sure that they are prepared on everything so that you don't end up with things that are untruthful, even speculative, which later turn out to be untruthful, that somebody could say, well, you intentionally lied, even if it was a, well, I didn't really know the answer, so I said what I thought. Those were the voices of Nick Bunch and Kit Adelman, white-collar defense attorneys at the firm Haynes Boone. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merit. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor today was Cheryl Sines, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Kimberly Robinson. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the yachts, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.